When the pandemic shutdown went into effect, industries across New York ground to a halt, including those that were not so visible to many New Yorkers. I first pivoted to OnlyFans, where I was making some fetish niche content. Escorting is my passion. It's the best job I've ever had. It's a job I've loved the most. So I'm doing as much of in-person escorting work as I can while remaining safe. Sex workers already were facing so many challenges. Strippers, escorts, and other people working in the sex trade were not immune to the impacts of the economic slowdown brought on by the spread of COVID. Most lacked the social safety nets that were available to many others during the crisis. Some continued with their work despite the increased risk, while many others switched to adult work online. The website OnlyFans, which enables people to set up a subscription-based page and then use it to sell content like photos and videos, experienced a 75% increase in new creator registrations at the beginning of the pandemic. The National Institutes of Health found that 52% of the sex workers they surveyed continued to see clients while coronavirus spread. I'm Steve Kastenbaum, and this is New York Gritty a podcast about the resiliency of New Yorkers in times of crisis. I have a very clear separation in my head, you know, between like work and like my private sex life. Filming content, it's like, I'm not like fully turned on, but it's not like, it doesn't feel like a chore either. But like my private sex life with my boyfriend and with myself is like, has a totally different feel and is like nowhere near my work. So before the pandemic, you were earning your money as a babysitter. Were you happy doing that? What was it like for you? I was. And my mom actually always says that babysitting is the gateway to sex work because you have to have a lot of the same skills. You have to have a lot of patience. You have to know how to talk to people you don't actually really want to be talking to. You have to like make it look like you're listening when you're not really. And you have to feign enthusiasm. My name is Angel Provocateur. Um, I work on OnlyFans now, but before the pandemic, I was primarily a babysitter. Um, I am a second generation kinkster and sex worker. My mom was a pro dom in New York City before I was born and until I was probably like five. And I'm a native New Yorker. Tell everybody what you mean by your mom being a pro dom, because some folks uh, may not be familiar (laughs) with the term. Um, a professional dominatrix. Um, she dominated mostly men for money. <laughs> How did you find out about that? Uh, that that's not something <laughs> that uh, you know most of us are accustomed to having that conversation with our mom. How did you find out? Um, we never really actually had an initial conversation about it, but I used to find um, her and my godmother ran a fetish ball in New York, and she would she was very into flyers, so I would find flyers all over the apartment like leading up to the ball and then there was one night a year where she would be in like a latex gown or something and I was like this is great you're actually wearing makeup for once so before the pandemic though you were not working in this field you were a babysitter I was working for my neighbors and I was working babysitting the kids of um a a professional sports team in the city um and it was really fun I'm really good with kids and I actually very much miss them. Like it's the longest I've gone without actually interacting with small children. So when the pandemic hit, your babysitting job went away. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't work with those families in their homes, right? I, that, and um, my dad is, what is 70, 
eight, I think. And he had like a mild cancer at the beginning of the pandemic. And so he was super high risk. So like we went on like total isolation mode for Mm. like at least four months. Like we honestly didn't go anywhere. So how's your dad now? He's doing well. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. So your, your revenue stream then completely dried up. Yep. How did you come to the decision then to become a content creator on OnlyFans uh, with adult material? I already had an OnlyFans account open um, since November of 2019. And I was posting like two or three times a week. I had some content because my friends and I um, go, well, used to go to kink parties pretty often. And we would take pictures of ourselves in lingerie on our way to kink parties. So I had some pictures laying around that I would just post on OnlyFans. But then starting like end of March of 2020, I actually started taking pictures like several times a week and like focused on lighting and like being more consistent about it and promoting it. So that's when I started actually caring. Did it grow quickly? Did, did, did you have to put a lot of marketing in it? I mean, just just having a page on a website doesn't automatically mean that you suddenly have followers and customers. How did right. it grow? And OnlyFans does not have any um, internal like search engines or anything either. So mine did not grow quickly. I primarily advertised on Instagram first, and then I was kind of doing like Tinder and Bumble, which I still do. But um, mine has been a slow growth. You started out with just pictures and, and you do what else on, on OnlyFans? Like, is, is it just photos? Is it just videos? Like, what are you I comfortable actually, doing now? I post um, one video and like a, a small photo set every day. And those I post on my feed, those are like, they're all nude. Like some are like a little more explicit than others. My most explicit, like full length videos, I do like full sex tapes, mostly with women. And those are, those cost like a little bit extra. I have them listed on my archives page. So it's like kind of a cool little organization. Some models send um, PPV pay-per-view. It's called PPV, but like you you only buy it once. But anyway, um, some people send those to all of their subscribers in messages and then they can unlock them. So there's a lot of different ways, a lot of different methods to earn cash through OnlyFans, not just the subscription fee. Yes. There's a lot of other additional things you do to generate more cash, basically. Yeah, it entirely depends on like how much effort and what kind of effort you want to put in. Is it safe to say that this wasn't too difficult to transition for you or was it was it odd at first? Was it were you uncomfortable ever or did it did it you know, slowly evolve or did you just like dive right into it? I I did like think twice a little bit about like doing full length or like fully explicit sex tapes. But like, I, I've always, this is a very, very privileged position of mine. And I fully understand that most people cannot say this, but I've always thought that if any job in the future is going to deny me because of this, like I, clearly don't want that job and I feel confident enough that like you know sex work will always be there to fall back on so I'm I I don't I I don't think I'm ever going to be struggling to feed myself even before COVID sex workers existed you know at the margins and at the intersection of so many challenges 
My name is Melissa Bruto, and I'm a longtime attorney and advocate for sex workers and survivors of human trafficking. I'm the legal director of the National Advocacy Organization Decriminalized Sex Work and the co-director of New York City-based organization, the SOAR Institute. I'm also a native New Yorker. Tell me what your world was like pre-pandemic and what was going on for people who are sex workers who work uh, in a variety of different areas. Sex workers were facing an increased, I would say, attack in, in other ways. Before COVID, there had been an increasing number of federal regulations and, and federal bills, some of that have passed, some that haven't, that seek to regulate sex work on the internet. So sex workers were already dealing with that, especially in the wake of FOSTA-SESTA, which was a federal bill that passed in 2018 that really decimated dozens, if not hundreds of websites, adult uh, entertainment websites, where people were able to find and vet clients safely were shut down. We, we have obviously free speech and there's free speech protection on the internet, right? Communications Decency Act permit, you know, has always sort of allowed websites, websites to exist without being liable for what people post on those sites. This created an exemption that basically allowed websites to be sued for trafficking um, if they permitted prostitution or, you know, exploitation on their sites. The problem, I mean, there's endless problems with that. (laughs) One of them being that there is this conflation between sex work and human trafficking, right? Those are two distinct things, right? And so when you say a website can be sued for trafficking people or permitting trafficking to occur, how are you you know, disentangling that from consensual prostitution? And also, how are you disentangling that from legal sex work? And when we're talking about sex workers, we're talking about a broad range of everything from um, at one end of this realm, as you talked about prostitution or or escorts, right? There's a big range there, right? Of of people that are encompassed in this sex work uh, label. Sometimes they they include fetishes like dominatrix and and whatnot, even if sex isn't involved. It's a broad range of people that that are covered by this term. Correct. So sex work is a really broad umbrella term, right? Where you have most most of erotic or sexual labor is fully legal, right? Most of it is, is not defined under prostitution laws. So that was the landscape for people who are in the sex work industry pre-COVID, then the pandemic happens and shut down everything that involved in-person interactions. Did it shut down some online stuff too? Or or is it mostly just, you know, exotic dancers and and people who are in the escort work? Well, I think what made it so hard is that the online piece was already such a a complicated struggle because of FOSTA-SESTA. Then you see a wave of of people trying to figure out the online space, which again is already has has seen immense restrictions. So it's already a more narrow space. And then all of a sudden you have everybody rushing to be part of the online space who before was doing sex work in person. 
So I think it's just, it, it became so competitive. Um, what was already a competitive market, right? Camming and, and, you know, online porn and all that stuff. It's already very competitive. And then you just see everybody trying to figure out how to make a living online. It's really hard. It's an already crowded competitive space that's fraught with all these legal difficulties. And now it's, it's, you know, even more so. I mean, the nice thing about camming and online porn is that it's legal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, there, you know, you have to figure it's, 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 you're sort of completely pivoting, right? If you're somebody that engaged in, you know, that's a whole other market that you're having to figure out. I actually really enjoy it. Um, I really, really enjoy interacting. I love talking to my fans. I really like what I do. And that during the pandemic, I spoke to a lot of people that had fear of even dating. And I would be talking to somebody and they're like, you know, it's just me and my daughter and I'm scared to death to meet anybody. And all of a sudden they're coming to me for comfort. And um, they're like, I normally don't do this, you know, and I can really tell because they're, they're like, they're, they're, they're saying, you know, I can't go on Tinder no more. I am Marcella Alonzo. I am currently a content creator out of New York City. I, Before the pandemic, I was working a union job here in New York City. And then I transitioned um, during the pandemic into content creation, which is now my full-time job. And I'm since September, I'm actually juggling two different jobs. So since September, things have changed. What are the two jobs you've been juggling? That That's a... Uh... That's a pivot again, another pivot for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been really a challenge now because, um, you know, as the city started opening up, um, and everything here, I was maintaining a, a really good income in one job that started during the pandemic, but then now it's the, um, reality of, I need to get my pension. I need to get my health insurance. So mm. that's why I'm juggling them too. One may, you know, my vanilla job wasn't paying so well. Yeah, it has benefits that are long term that the other job, the content creation with OnlyFans and Sex Panther um, does not provide. So, um, you know, I've, I've got to juggle both of them, you know, to survive. Mm-hmm. OnlyFans is a platform basically where um, it's all about me. I showcase a lot of my photos topless and some nudes um, on the feed. And then also I interact on the DMs with Sex Panther. I really love um I get to talk to my fans and I also on both platforms do video calls where I'm live chatting one-on-one. And all of those aspects, uh, not only are you interacting with your fans, it provides income for you, right? Yes. Yes. And a, a lot of, um, during the pandemic, a lot of people were lonely and I was profiting very much so because I do love interacting with my fans and some were, you know, just lonely wanting to chat and some were you know, just feeling some kind of way sexual. So um, I did do something called sexting a lot too, as well. Before the pandemic, you had your union job. Mm -hmm. Was that going well for you before the pandemic? Yeah, no, it was going well. I was working quite often. I was, you know, maintaining a good income. Um, Everything was really, really good. Um, I actually, I've actually been in that union type of job since 2008, 2009. And I did it in Los Angeles. And then I came to New York City about two years ago, got right, you know, was real busy in New York City for a while up until the pandemic hit. 
all of a sudden, you know, everything was shut down, all of New York City. I think so many people were such a big transition for every single person out there. What were you thinking at that point when it shut down and it started to become apparent that this isn't going to be just a few weeks, that it's going to be months and maybe much longer than that? And and New York being such a high cost city, you got to pay the rent, you got to pay your bills. What were you thinking? Well, right away, I was like, I, I realized this is like the perfect time for this to happen because we have the internet. So right away, like I just got on it. And um, I just started really going hard at this. I just saw like a chance to make money. You know, I dived, I was familiar with the platform, but I really, you know, dived in a hundred percent right when the pandemic, and I also work daily on it. So, and I'm a person, I like to keep busy daily. So I couldn't just sit home, watch the news and sit there and panic. I just had to, you know, work on something, a little project. So, you know, right away it was just, second nature, you know, you got to pay your bills. Nobody's paying it for you. Had you ever worked producing any sort of adult content before or doing adult entertainment before? I did do adult entertainment. When I was 18 years old, I started stripping and I stopped in, I want to say 2012. So I did have that background. However, I transitioned to my vanilla job. You know, I thought, oh, this is it. This is going to be the last of it. Nope. That wasn't the case. (laughs) How did that feel for you going from what you're calling a a vanilla job back into this adult entertainment world? It didn't really bug me because I did have that prior experience. Um, Again, I've just felt blessed that it happened at the right time because of the internet. When I was younger, you know, we didn't really have, there was, there wasn't really, there was just, I think, webcamming and, and that was it. So I felt kind of blessed that it happened the way it did at the right time, like stuff happened and And then another thing, I did not want to deal with unemployment. I did not want to deal with welfare or nothing like that. So I was like, let me just work hard, you know, and those that need those benefits, they can go get it. So I just dived into it. I really pushed myself hard. I also learned during that time how I'm probably the best photographer for myself ever. You're your own photographer. I'm my own photographer. So I have learned how to shoot myself. So um, during the pandemic, I watched a lot of YouTube videos how to take photos. I also watched about stage dressing, like how to, you know, do the background, how to take, you know, like make the background look nice, set decoration, you name it. I, I, I just really dived into it. So I'm kind of my own one, one person operation here. I do have assistants though. I do have assistants, but they help me more with the marketing aspect. Sex is everywhere. Like everything about our society, like Everyone's aware of sex. Most people desire and want sex. And it's just where we deem it is or is not appropriate that we're allowed to express those things. But I I see it all the time. Like all of my private clients that I used to work with and that I, you know, work with now, they're all just regular people who would never feel comfortable expressing that they subscribe to an OnlyFans or that they've been to a strip club unless it's a bachelor party. It it just is a bummer. There's a lot of shame around everybody's individual sexuality that keeps us really separated from each other. My name's Colleen and before the pandemic I was working at an underground strip club. 
um, where I was primarily a dancer, but my club also allowed tantric massage as well as some pro-doming, which I participated in. Uh, and then obviously once COVID hit, everything had to shut down. And I first pivoted to OnlyFans where I was making some fetish, like niche content. And then it, uh, eventually also I started making some content with my partner, a little more traditional boy-girl content as we went on. <laughs> There's a wide variety of things that exist in this broad term sex work in New York City. What is an underground sex club? Because we're all familiar with what uh, the, the striptease club is on the streetscape of New York. What's an underground sex club? Yeah, great question. So the club that I worked at was technically not legal, <laughs> um, which I actually only found out about after I started working there. Um, and really the the main reason for the differentiation, I think, is because New York City particularly has some pretty strict rules about what is and is not allowed in a strip club. Um, for example, like there's regulations on the type of panties that you have to wear. They like can't be sheer and they have to be at least three fingers thick and, you know, a couple other things um, because New York City doesn't allow full nude and other things like that. Um, and this club was just like kind of flying under the radar of those things. And so we still were primarily a strip club. We were technically a lap dance club. Um, and so most of the, well, you know, we didn't have a pole. And so most of the money we made was through either booking lap dancers or booking private rooms. Um, my club was lax with like physical contact in a traditional uh, New York City strip club. There's no physical touching like allowed. Most girls don't allow it, period, but uh, the clubs will really enforce that. And my club did not enforce that. And so there was more uh, human contact. <laughs> when you say an underground strip club, does that mean, uh, was there like a membership fee or something like that mm -hmm. in order to be able to go to this place? Or was it similar to a typical strip club where you, you pay at the door and you're in? Um, so what I understand, there, there was not a membership fee, but there was a private list. Um, so the members didn't have to like pay a monthly fee to like get into the into the party, but you had to know somebody who went to get invited. So what happened in the beginning of March to that club when the pandemic forced a, a shutdown of everything in New York? Since this was an institution operating below the radar, did it keep operating or did it also shut down? Well, everybody was talking about COVID, but we weren't really sure um, how dangerous it was. And so we were operating probably for a couple weeks longer than other clubs, I would say, who shut down a bit quicker. But eventually the restriction on uh, just like venues and because we, we would rent out bars that uh, like after hours is how we would operate. And mm -hmm. eventually the bars were like, we cannot lose our license over this. Like we need to stop. And so we stopped having venues and that's when we stopped working. So was this your main source of income at the time? Um, yeah, I would say so for sure. So what did you do? Well, I mean, you can't like suddenly apply for unemployment if you were working in in this type of an establishment, I imagine, or, or did you? Were you able to apply for unemployment? I was able to get some pandemic assistance um, because that was a bit less strict than typical unemployment. And so that was definitely helpful. But honestly, I was also floundering. Um, I had a decent amount of savings because I was doing you know pretty well at the club at the time. And so I wasn't panicking 
but we also had no idea when anything was going to open again. And so I, you know, I was talking to my other dancer friends and I was like, girls, what are we doing? <laughs> like what, what's going on here? And my club actually, um, tried to help us pivot for a little while. They were doing virtual strip room clubs. Um, <laughs> so he would invite the girls who wanted to, a lot of girls didn't cause there was this issue with anonymity and they were really scared to be on camera. A lot of the girls I worked with had, you know, prolific day jobs and they were really worried about their identity, but some girls were like ready to give it a shot. That was pretty fun and like definitely helped us make a a small amount of money. But what it really did is help me get really comfortable to be on camera. And that's after I did a few of those, I was like, I think I just need to start doing this myself. And that's when I made my OnlyFans. So you went to the website OnlyFans, as did a lot of women uh, after the pandemic shutdown happened. What was that transition for you like going from, you know, being on stage or or being someone who made her living doing lap dances to suddenly having to be on a website and, and find customers? Yeah, it was a it was a wild transition. I, I was a little you know, at first, uh, at first, I thought maybe this is going to be really great, actually, because, you know, there's definitely some things about working in person that aren't ideal. There's always some groping that isn't exactly what you want. There's always like na- just navigating intoxicated humans that like is a struggle. And so I was pretty optimistic. I was like, maybe this will just be a piece of cake. Like no one's even around. Just me being sexy on camera. But pretty soon after, I hit like a little bit of a creative rut because I realized that what actually was so energizing and exciting to me about the type of work I was doing at the club was the human interaction, was like feeding off of the energy of this human who I was there to like perform and entertain and have a good time with. And that feedback is like what made me feel sexy and how I kept like putting out that sexual energy. Um, we kind of would feed off of each other. And I found out that when it was just me alone in my room with a camera, it was a bit harder to to really channel that and feel excited and into it, at least at the beginning. <laughs> is that when you decided to start doing videos with, is it your partner, your boyfriend? How, yeah, how yeah, you- yeah, it's my it's my boyfriend. I call him my partner because um, I'm not monogamous. And so sometimes it gets confusing. So I just call everybody my partner. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, yeah, he's my partner. And you started making full-on sex videos for the website? Yeah, yeah. We just started making porn, basically. Um, because, uh, you know, me me and my partner, you know, always had this amazing sex life. We were already doing um, sex parties together where we were kink performers. And so we would we would like perform as like dom and sub together and like give these like spanking performances. And, and we always had a lot of like, performative chemistry is kind of mm-hmm. how I think about it, um, which which felt really, you know, amazing. And it tra- that actually translated really easily onto camera. I know people who are, are still finding parties and fun right now, which are, you know, I know there's an underground scene going on at the moment. Um, I know that some parties of our, our type have already come back and have been trying to come back for a long time. I mean, there's there's been a few high-profile fo- busts of clubs uh, in New York. My name is Kenny Blunt. I am the co-founder and one of the producers of Chemistry NYC, which is an erotic party that happens um, 
happens usually in Brooklyn, but at different different locations throughout the city. Uh, and we're waiting to come back. Explain what the erotic party is, what chemistry is, what it's like, how long it's been around, what the attendees are like. Sure, sure. Um, well, we're a private uh, membership organization, which means that there's a there's a process to get invited. It's not something that we advertise to the to the general public, or you know, and which helps in that we we always know who's at the event. It's uh, where you often hear of kind of parties getting out of control. It's it's an environment that stays controlled, but uh, but within that, you know, it's 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 a really crazy, wild. Uh, <laughs> just wild fun experience what we bring to the the erotic event is um, entertainment we'll have usually live music we'll have burlesque performers uh, you know often circus style acts and uh, just really a really great intelligent artistic community we have been in operation our, our first party was in 2006 so in May we'll hit our 15th anniversary what are the attendees like who go to this, how many are there, and what's a typical night like? Generally, I mean, and it depends on what venue, because we use various various venues. A party can be, generally, they were between 100 and 200 attendees. You know, after after 15 years, our membership really runs the gamut. We, we have a lot of artists, we have a lot of professional people. Our, you know, our age range is all, all over the place. I mean, I'd say the vast majority of our our attendees are in their 20s and 30s, but kind of along with that Burning Man ethos, it's really more of a, of an attitude. So, you know, we have some partiers in their 40s, 50s. I think we have a really good, we're, we're like New York, we have a really good representation of, of people. You know, usually a party opens at 9, and the bulk of the crowd is there usually by 11 or so. Uh, we'll have, uh, you know, a band play, uh, you know, as people mingle and get to know each other. We'll have a burlesque show usually that happens around uh, 11 or midnight, you know, some, somewhere in there. Uh, and then we'll have a DJ for dancing throughout the night. It's, it's kind of important to us to, uh, to have a lot going on so that it's one of those things where if you, if you create an environment where not everything is focused on the sexual element, people have a lot to see and do and and talk about when they're meeting new people it really creates a sexy environment um, and then yes we do have playrooms at, at the party where people are free to uh, to engage with each other people they meet people they came with uh, whatnot in a safe manner consent I imagine is a is a big part of that yeah consent is key enthusiastic consent is something that uh, not only that we're looking for uh, a real uh, depth of understanding from in people when they apply to our group, but also something that we're constantly reminding people. You know, a certain amount of our staff is dedicated to being uh, our chemistry consent squad on site, who are you know angels who sit around the play space, make sure that everything's uh, kosher there, everything's going well, and also just be there if things come up for people, if anyone needs anything. So, when was your last party before? coronavirus hit New York City? Sure. Our last events that we had were um, Valentine's Day weekend 2020. Uh, oddly enough, and they were really, truly in, in our history, they were up there as one of the best parties. So our last parties were Friday and Saturday night, uh, February 13th and 14th, I believe. And uh, oddly enough, the theme of that party, because our parties do have costume themes uh, most times, was uh, my apocalyptic Valentine? It was a, 
it was a future, an apocalyptic uh, world future thing. And um, it was it was crazy because the whisperings of coronavirus were in the air. And if you heard this thing that's that's coming and is it going to is it going to change our lives? Is it going to be another, you know, scare like some of the other scares that had happened? You know, Ebola, swine flu that never really touched us here. Um, so that was a lot of the conversation of the evening. We had a we had a couple of you know kind of uh, radioactive type danger signs up that people were really uh, really really struck by the fact that uh, what was going on in, in current events and but yeah once uh, South by Southwest canceled I kind of knew knew something was in the air once the NBA shut down their season I kind of knew that was the game was up and for you you have the added concern of of privacy for your partygoers, right? Indeed, yeah, indeed. In fact, um, that was one of the things that went into the decision then because it was pointed out to us well because the just the beginnings of contact tracing uh, was, was coming to light and that that's how one of the ways that public health officials were going to be dealing, dealing with this. So that was one of the nails in the coffin of that last party when we started to think, well, even if we're careful, if one person has it, they're going to come and be asking us for our entire list. Um, and we knew that, that just wouldn't fly with people that, you know, a lot of people are really concerned about uh, their privacy around our event and something we have to put a lot of effort into. With that in mind, you haven't had a party since then, right? We have not had a party since, no, no. You know, we went into hibernation like like most of the city for, for the first three, four months or so, when the very first time that cases were really getting low and there was hope in the air around June or so, we, we had a Prospect Park meetup. You know, we, we preached everyone to wear their mask, to, you know, to be safe about it, to, you know, only, only come if they had <laughs> gone through that checklist that we've all gone through, you know, and not traveled. So that was an outdoor, just get-together sort of thing. Yeah, it was definitely not our party. It was it was a family affair. In fact, you know, some people brought their kids. It was, uh, it was a social distance meetup just to you know actually see other people. You know, we set up a DJ. There was some dancing, but it was really a different kind of thing. So, how are you feeling about the future then, in in this realm, in this this aspect of New York's social and economic fabric? <laughs> that's I mean, that's hard to say. Uh, we're we're feeling hopeful, hopeful, uh, you know, that things will be back. I don't know. It's a, it's a different New York. I mean, a, a lot of people left. A lot. Will, will those people come back? I feel confident that what we do uh, stands out enough that, that there's going to be a market for it in a place like New York City. Maybe we'll have to temper our, our expectations. Maybe we'll come back a little smaller. Uh, maybe it'll take a while for us to, to build back. But, you know, I, I feel pretty good. Just what I don't feel, you know, quite so secure of is just when will this all happen? There's, there's still a year into it, it seems there's so little known about exactly what, <laughs> what tomorrow holds for us. You know, uh, President Biden has, uh, has set down that symbolic Independence Day of, of July 4th as when we'll be free of what I took it to mean or heard was the masks and the pandemic living. We hope that's true. We'll, we'll be throwing a party that, that weekend for sure. 
escorting is my passion. It's the best job I've ever had. It's a job I've loved the most. So I'm doing as much of in-person escorting work as I can while remaining safe and only seeing clients that I think will be a good fit for me, right? So I had never stopped during the pandemic, really. I'm Mia Lee. I'm an escort based in New York and San Francisco. Mia, how long have you been in this line of work? A couple years now. How did you first get into this? I suppose most sex workers have uh, very unique stories, um, but even within the community, mine's a bit uncommon. So I worked in finance for a little over 10 years. And I the year that I was about like tracking to make partner, we'll say I was up for partner. And I developed clinical depression and I was on sick leave. And after I recovered, it just became really apparent to me that I wasn't going to be able to go to go back and work the same hours. I was in restructuring and there's a lot of travel. It's a ton of hours. You're constantly glued to your phone. And it's just like a pace of work that while I enjoyed the work I did very much, I realized that to maintain my mental health, I, I just couldn't go back to those hours. So I started dabbling in sugaring because I was like, well, I might have to change careers or go back to school. And, you know, I don't want to like burn through all of my savings. And in doing so, I found that I really wanted to do sex work. I really love sex work. Um, so a few months after sugaring, I decided to go pro using big air quotes here. So I did a ton of research on professional escorting and screening and marketing and, photography, web design, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, about a few months after starting to sugar, I, I went pro quote unquote, and mm-hmm. I started escorting and I haven't really looked back since it's the best job I've ever had. Can you explain what sugaring is the sugar daddy? So like typically sugar arrangements are not by the hour, the way escorting rates work. So a lot of the, the sugar babies end up spending a lot more time with the sugar daddies than you would if you were a provider and the boundaries are much fuzzier. So there's a lot of texting in it and it's almost like a full relationship. And I prefer to have a very professional relationship where I show up for X number of hours or X number of days. It's agreed upon. I provide a service. I provide you the best possible service that I can. And Mm -hmm. then we both go home. So another thing that some people who are listening now might want to understand is how is this different from what they perceived to be prostitution? According to my attorney, (laughs) who is very expensive, I sell my time. And he's not wrong, right? I do not, I'm not intimate with every single client. I absolutely sell my time. And this is, it's complicated, right? Because it's a function of privilege that I'm able to say I sell my time. It's a function of privilege that I'm able to afford the attorney that I have to give me legal advice on my legal risks. And obviously somebody who is working the tracks, um, that that's how we refer to a lot of street-based sex workers, is not able to say that, right? I mean, they're, they're generally performing certain acts in exchange for an amount of money. So yeah, again, I guess if you ask my attorney, I sell my time and technically I don't sell sex, which is true. But the reality mm-hmm. is most clients who book with a provider expect some level of intimacy. You also pay taxes. This is a real job for you. Oh, yeah. It's it's very much a business. I love the business aspect of it. 
So what were you doing? How was your business going right before the pandemic hit New York City? It would be common as a high-end provider for like 80% of your business in New York City to be business travelers. And obviously business travel is ground to an absolute halt, like not 5%, like 0%, right? So mm-hmm. in terms of how this has impacted my business, so pre-COVID, I was touring very minimally. I was really just New York and San Francisco, and I was seeing business travelers in both of those cities. And I had a few regulars, still have a few regulars in either of those cities that, that live locally. Um, And I was also doing a lot of travel to either conferences or accompanying my clients on business trips. Um, So as you can imagine, a lot of those things have gone away. And, And what's been unfortunate from an experiential perspective, money aside, is that those were the bookings that I enjoyed the most. And and frankly, the ones where I felt like I was providing the most value to my clients, that's gone away in its entirety. And volume, I think, is generally down for everyone for a litany of reasons, although it's coming back as people get vaccinated. You know, they keep talking about a new landscape here in, in this city as far as business is concerned. You know, uh, the, the offices not being fully occupied, even when the pandemic is over. The predictions, and we don't know if these will come true, are for a different landscape as far as um, the number of people coming into the city are concerned. So from someone who is dependent on that flow of people, what's your outlook for the future of New York? Yeah, again, I I think it's very hard to predict. I will say that the specific niche client demographic that I serve is typically restrained by factors other than funds, right? So this is the world's oldest profession, Clients definitely want to see us. So we clients are going to find a way to pay for it and we're going to find a way to make it easy for them to do that. So whether that is by maintaining an in-call location in New York, that's not a hotel or traveling to them or meeting them where their business travel takes them, we're going to figure it out. I mean, this is a very adaptive industry. I'd like to consider myself a pretty resilient, adaptive business person. So I don't know what that's going to look like. I think... I think New York as a financial hub will remain for quite some time. I mean, we've survived many, many, I don't know if setback is the right word. We've survived a lot of adversity pre-COVID. And I think New York as a city will continue to do so. Mm -hmm. But business is definitely starting to pick up for me and in my industry. And I think that clients are also eager to return to the the lives that they had before, right? And that does require some concentration of culture and dining and beautiful women and colleagues and all of these things. And you're really going to find that in large cities like New York and San Francisco. So we are looking at a new world in a sense. And we're looking at the more availability of of rapid tests, of, of PCR tests, of, you know, of all of these things. And so I do think that more and more people are going to be engaging in, and are already engaging in in-person sex work. That's Melissa Brudeau again, the attorney and advocate for decriminalizing sex work. Post-pandemic, and of course that that term can mean so many different things because as we as we've all learned the hard way, there isn't a magic wand for this. But now we're we have the a vaccine, you know, we have multiple vaccines. So I, I think that you, you know, we're probably already looking at an increase in sex workers working and, you know, again, just figuring out how to manage those risks. But I, you know, again, I would argue sex workers are experts um in in managing those risks already or d- different risks, not the COVID risk, but in, in managing health, you know, health risks already. 
The pandemic shined a light on many socioeconomic inequities in New York, and the sex trade was not immune. While the women we spoke with all chose to do erotic work, others turned to prostitution on the streets because they saw no other option. The women in this episode believe that decriminalizing sex work would help to combat illegal sex trafficking and other crimes. Help is available at the Sex Workers Outreach Project. We heard some of the women in this episode talk about the return of business travel. It raises questions about the future of office spaces and commercial real estate in this city. On the next episode of New York Gritty. Working from home, uh, a nice concept, but it is completely unsustainable. The city exists because of the millions of people who show up every day here, midtown and downtown. Follow New York Gritty on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Check out the website for more on the city's recovery from the pandemic, nygritty.com. And send me an email if you have a story about how you're getting by during this tough time, steve at nygritty.com. Look for New York Ritty on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for details on upcoming episodes and more information about the impact of the pandemic here. I'm Steve Kastenbaum. Thanks for listening.